0: Uh, so I'm a primary teacher. I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, thanks, John. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a second. But I want to start off uh, just by reading the start of one of these books. It's called Voyage of the Dawn Treader, It's uh, one of the. It's the fifth in the Narnia series. They made a movie about it. The movie sucked. The books better. It starts like this: There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. His parents called him Eustace Clarence, and masters called him Scrub. I can't tell you how his friends spoke to him, for he had none. He didn't call his father and mother father and mother, but Harold and Alberta. They were very up-to-date and advanced people. They were vegetarians, non-smokers, and teetotalers. I don't actually know what that is. And wore a special kind of underclothes. In their house, there was very little furniture and very few clothes on the beds, and the windows were always open. It goes on. Eustace Clarence liked animals, cool, especially beetles, if they were dead and pinned on a card, not so cool. He liked books if they were books of information and had pictures of grain elevators or of fat foreign children doing exercises in model schools. Another bit a little bit later on. Last year, when he had been staying with the Pevensies, he had managed to hear them all talking of Narnia, and he loved teasing them about it. He thought, of course, that they were making it all up. And as he was far too stupid to make anything up himself, he did not approve of that. That book kind of sets him up to be easily the worst character that Lewis ever wrote. And in the movie, it's easy to see that because everybody hates him. Have you seen the movie? Just quick hands, quick show of hands if you've seen the movie. Okay, a couple. Show, now show than I was expecting. But he, this, this Eustace guy, he has a, one of the most unique character arcs in the entire series because he's the only one to get sucked into Narnia and go on this Narnian adventure and still not believe in it while he's there. He thinks it's somewhere else. He's trying to find the the British consul to to put in complaints or whatever. Generally, everybody hates him. Even though, to start off with, he's absorbed into a painting. He gets pulled onto a deck of a ship with mythical creatures and goes on whimsical adventures to defeat the evil in the land and finds seven old missing lords, all the while believing that it's a myth. We'll chat a bit more about him later on. Um... The point of the series that we're getting into now is to uh, sort of explore what kind of starting point you would have for faith as an adult, if you were just meeting Jesus for the first time. Uh, I want to thank Dave Nusky, started it off uh, two weeks ago by sort of dropping us in the, just sort of introducing us, kind of, to God. He left us on a bit of a cliffhanger. And to Sean last week, who finished Dave's sermon. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my qualifications on this. Throughout my family history, I am anywhere between third and seventh generation Adventist, which clearly means I'm the most qualified person in the room to talk about somebody who's just meeting Jesus now. But not everyone's raised in the church. Not everyone has grounded by Jesus and church life like I have, so... We'll start fresh. Everybody here, just pretend you've never met Jesus. You're, you're meeting here today on Saturday for some other reason, and we're going to pretend that we're to not have the experience, to just be impressionable, I suppose. So to start off with, we're going to bust a few myths about the character of God in society today. Or not a few, probably just one. Um, to do that, I wanted to introduce you to a few people. The first was Eustace. The second is a student that I had a little while ago. He was a very fun student, um, politely. Uh, he, on, he and one of his friends were out on the Oval one day, and boys being boys, they were just swinging their fists around. Just generally, like not intending any harm, but just, I'm a man, I'm a swing my fists around. And one of these flying fists catches him in the face. And I wasn't nearby at this point, but this is the story that I was told later. A student comes running across to me because I'm on duty, and he says, Sir, sir, this this guy's bleeding. And you know when a student runs up to you the way that this student was running up, like it's serious. So I sort of hot-footed it over to this student, and it was. This kid was like just yelling at his friend and trying to get away, and his blood was just pouring out of his nose, and... I I was like, whoa, okay. Um, I haven't been a teacher for very long. Uh, This is new for me. So I walked up to him and I stopped him. And I I said to him, hey, stop. Stop moving. You look ridiculous. Can I get a photo, actually? I want to show my friends a little bit. Look at the mess you've gotten yourself into. I'm going to be over there. You let me know when you've just mopped up your face. And then we'll talk. <laughs> we've been wondering since, uh, since time started, essentially, for us. Um, you know, way back in creation, we've, we've had this story that... Well, not you guys, because you are obviously new to the faith. There's this story in the Bible of this guy called Adam, he was created, and it took us all of three chapters at the start of the book for us to completely mess it up. So we've been wondering, how do we get ourselves back to God? How do we live right? How do we get back to this place that we were created for? And unfortunately, that story with the student is the kind of picture that we see of God. We messed up. We need to buy our way back. We need to earn ourselves our place again. Or, if God existed, then he's abandoned us because we messed up. So how do we get back? And because of that question, it's sort of evolved into questions like... uh, uh, Earning salvation... Like, uh, we have to get it back ourselves. Like, it's on us. The onus is on us to come back. Zoroastrians believe in the struggle against evil, evil to earn salvation. Judaism has five pillars that you need to just really faithfully follow. Hindus need to purify themselves. Buddhists renounce themselves to achieve Nirvana. You get the picture. We're trying to earn it back. Now, among this uh, pantheon of religions, we have three major monotheistic ones. We have three that believe in one God. One God. Those are Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And they've kind of danced around each other since they started, um, but they converge at some key points. The first one is Adam, where things were created and where we messed it up. And the second one is Abram. And we're going to get into Genesis chapter 12 in just a second. So if you've got your Bibles or your eyeballs, you can jump ahead to it. But Abram is a really unique character for the reason that he is where all of these religions really started he 's the one that kicked it off. Chapter eleven has this really intense detail about his genealogy, which i f- don 't really get because of some reasons i 'll tell you soon. Um, but later on, when he goes by abraham he 's the one that everyone bragged about being connected to he 's the the forefather he 's the the, the patriarch of, of essentially all three religions. So in chapter 11, second half of chapter 11, it explores Abraham's genealogy. But it's not a brag for him because he's obviously connected to Noah and to Adam, both of which are the two great bottlenecks of humanity. They, um, everybody at that time had that connection. But also, no one cared because Abraham was pagan. So I did some research about genealogies in the Bible, and I could find five reasons that they had them. Number one, they confirmed historical reliability, which in this case, you know, I struggle with because for, for Abraham, I can only take the word for it. I can, I can only believe what they've told me. Number two, it reveals the importance of family to God and the writers of the Bible, and that's great Abraham. Why is it important that we know what came before him? Everyone had the same connections. Number three, it determined who could serve in specific roles like the Levites in the temple. Levites in the temple is the major one. That was what dictated the priesthood. But there were no Levites until four generations after Abraham. And that only happened because Abraham begat Isaac, begat Jacob, begat 12, sorry, sons. It proved Number four, it proved biblical prophecies. Abraham, first of all, fulfilled no prophecies, and all prophecies that he had anything to do with started with him. He was the one, he was the line that everyone was connected to. It had nothing to do with the people that came before him. And number five, it showed how God used a variety of people to fulfill his plan. And this is the only one that I figured actually fit the scenario. Abraham was perfect because he had nothing else going on. He was a nobody. He was a pagan that lived out in uh, in Bougainville of the Chaldeans. He was a shepherd. I don't actually know what it was. It doesn't make a point of that. But this was the man that God chose to build his kingdom. And now we go to Genesis 12. Probably would help if I turned this on. Magic. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kingdom and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Cool. So, Abram and his pretty but barren wife, Sarai, were called out of Haran, where they had lived and prospered, aiming to go to a land unknown to them. We'll revisit Eustace for a second Like Abram, he is also in very unknown territory. Unfortunately, C.S. Lewis did a really good job of writing him as a complete tool. So no one, characters or readers alike, have any sympathy for him. We all hate him. And that goes for the book and the movie. It's probably better in the movie because it's just whiny and annoying. At one point in the story, Eustace... Is, is traveling on this ship and the ship has this great battle and there's a whole lot of damage to the hull and they, they what's it called when they, they go up on land? They just, that's the one. They dock, I suppose. There's, it's just a beach. And he hears the captain and crew discussing how hard it's going to be to repair the ship. And Lazy uses. <laughs> Lazy, useless. Yeah. Um, he decides that's not for him, so he just leaves. On his little walkabout, he finds a dragon's hoard, which happens to be occupied by a dragon. It's a sick dragon. The dragon dies. Eustace thinks, awesome, gold. He goes in, and he is hunting around this gold stash, and he's thinking what the book calls dragonish thoughts. When night turns to day the next morning, Eustace finds out that he himself has been turned into a dragon. And here, this, this plot line, he realizes how much of a pain he is, he actually starts being helpful. He caught goats to feed the crew, he ripped out a tree to make a new mast for the ship, he lit campfires and he took people for joy rides. And he found out how much he actually liked being liked and liking others. And it kept him from, what again, what the book calls despair he was still a dragon. And all the helpfulness and consideration in the world wasn't earning him his human form back. Eustace doesn't change until he meets Jesus. His outer form doesn't reflect how he is inside or his state of salvation until later on. One night, as a dragon, he wakes up to find someone sneaking around. Oh, sorry. Misread. One night, Edmund, one of the Pivenzies, wakes up to find somebody sneaking around the camp. He looks around for the people that are still people, and he sees them all sleeping beside him. So he's like, no, no one's missing. And he sees Eustace coming back as a boy. And Edmund is like, hey, bro. And Eustace is like, yeah, I'm back, dude. Also, I think I met God. Here's the lowdown. Eustace looked up from sleeping, and he sees a lion walking towards him. Now, the, the C.S. Lewis personification of Jesus is a lion called Aslan. And he sees this lion. He doesn't know Aslan. He doesn't know Jesus. Not familiar to him at all, but he sees the lion, and he's just freaking out, and he closes his eyes, hoping the lion will just walk past, and then the lion speaks, and it says, follow me, so Eustace is like, all right, fair enough, and he follows him. They end up at a clearing, which has a nice little pool in it, and the dragon has this really tight armband on his arm, and he's thinking, oh man, that water looks so good, I just want to get in there, have a bit of a swim. Maybe it'll cool down this inflamed injury that I've got here. But before he does, the lion stops him and he says, no, no, you need to undress first. He's a dragon. He's not wearing any reptiles. Snakes shed their skin. Maybe that's what he's talking about. So he takes his dragonish arm and he just tries to like descale himself. And it works. He descales himself, and now there's a pile of scales just lying on the floor next to him. And he's like, awesome, time to dive in. But he's still a dragon. And, and, and he's like, okay, well, maybe I need to do it again. So he does it again, and now there's a new pile of scales, and he goes again, but it's still the same knobbly kind of thorny dragon hide underneath. And he's, he's just at a loss. He doesn't know what to do. Over and over and over again, he tries to remove his old skin, hoping to shed enough to be worthy, so to speak, of the water. I think in literature, this is one of the most beautiful metaphors for rebirth and salvation that I've found. The lion, who's been watching the whole time, says, Stop. You have to let me do it. You have to let me help you shed that skin might be easy for us to say, uh, I'm a better person now because I'm shedding my habits. I'm shedding those lifestyles that I've been uh, living till now. But lying underneath are the same habits, the same sinful spirit that we've been living with for this long. Lay down so that Aslan could get his paws dirty. And Aslan digs in deep and it hurts. And it like, really hurts. But then he strips the dragonish layer away and underneath is Eustace, and the lion catches Eustace as he falls from his big dragon size to be the size of a little boy, and instead of placing him down and letting him get into the water himself, the lion just throws him in. And the water hurts too. Eustace didn't earn anything on his own. His return to boyhood came as a gift from Aslan, much like God's promise to Abram came as a gift from God. The real God that we actually have the pleasure of knowing draws no pleasure from leaving his people out to dry. Did you? Did, you, did any of you believe that I actually told that kid to just clean himself up? <laughs> a little. Thanks. I appreciate that. No. Um, I went over to him. I sat him down. And um, I held tissues to his face and when it became clear the bleeding was not stopping, I kind of like gripped his arm and half carried him up to the office. I thought for sure he was going to drop on me on the way up. And yet that picture of me, that even though I told you the story, like maybe one person believed this much that I had actually done that, and yet this picture of God that we have in society is still telling us, no, he's a dictator. He's, he's, he's standing up there on his mountain looking down on us saying, no, no, earn your way back. Do what I've written in that book. And then maybe, just maybe, I'll think about letting you climb this mountain. And a lot of Christians have that. That's not, um, that's not exclusive to other religions that, we, that say we actually need to earn our way back. Islam have those rules they need to follow. Judaism has those rules they need to follow. Where God comes to us and offers it as a free gift. The only meaningful change in Eustace's life came when he met God. And likewise, the only meaningful change in Abram's life came when he met God. And the secret to starting something new with our Creator has been sitting in front of us this whole time. In Genesis fifteen six. It says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. That right standing that we are looking for comes with belief. See, Abram followed God. He said, yes. And even though he and Sarai struggled with God's promise for decades, they stayed faithful. They messed up on the way countless times. Abram and Sarai struggle to conceive for most of their life. They only have a one, had one son. Trouble follows them wherever they go. They visit Egypt, the Pharaoh's household. Pharaoh says, Ooh, she's pretty. Are you guys a thing? And Abram says, No, nah, that's my sister. And as they go, Egypt is struck by plagues when, when they lied about that. Lot was kidnapped, had to be rescued from invading kings. Lot's family splits from Abram because of strife in the family and it ends up in them having to be rescued from the atomized Sodom and Gomorrah. Sarai gives Abram her servant Hagar to have a son so that God's promise would happen through another woman. She gets pregnant and then Sarai is such a cow to her that Hagar runs away and the only piece of the promised land that Abram ever actually possessed was the burial plot that he bought for Sarai, which is where he was eventually buried. Did God really fulfill his promise? Do Abraham's offspring now completely cover the earth? See, those three religions that stem away from Abraham now cover more than four billion of the world's population, of about seven, a bit above seven. We've got over half of the world now has some connection to Abraham. Did God make Abraham's name? Great. Now, in any normal circumstances, could any of you tell me the name of a farmer or a shepherd that lived in the Middle East upwards of 4,000 years ago? No? How about the kings in that area? I'll give you some. Let me know if these ring any bells. Bera, Bersha, Shanab, Shemeba, Bela, Chetalioma, Amraphel, Ariok, and Tidal. Any of those make any sense to you? How is it that we in this church now, living in the year that we do, so far removed geographically from where... The story happened. How do we know the name Abraham? And last, all of the peoples of the earth shall be blessed through you. The specific wording of the text in the original Aramaic shows that it's not referring to Abraham or his descendants collectively. It's referring to Jesus. Would you say that Jesus has blessed the whole world? And that's great. Like we can look back in hindsight and say, Fantastic. It all worked out. Sunshine and roses. But all Abraham had was the word of a God that he didn't know. With no promise of success or reward, Abraham staked his life on the promise. And whatever rules and conditions came afterwards were just a way to show that the people of Israel lived different. Galatians goes one step further. says this. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Time to be candid. The world has critically misunderstood their role in salvation. Our God left his throne to sift through the muck of human filth and to bring salvation to us. Here's the punchline. And I'll get the band to start walking up now. In Romans 4... Verses 16 and 17, it says, So the promise is received by faith. It's given as a free gift, and we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the laws of Moses, if we have faith like Abraham's. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. Verse 17, this is what the scriptures mean when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. If you need more proof, these are verses just from the first couple of books, couple of the end books in the New Testament, that all say the same thing. Believe and be saved. Hebrews 11 goes into detail about Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance... "'Obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. "'By faith he made his home in the promised land "'like a stranger in a foreign country. "'He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, "'who were heirs with him of the same promise. "'For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, "'whose architect and builder is God. "'And by faith even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, "'was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful "'who had made the promise.' And so from this one man, and he, as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. And that's not Brisbane city sky. That's like zero light pollution ancient times. The sky would have been painted with white. So, offspring of Abraham, children of the covenant. You, whoever so believes in him, shall not perish but have everlasting life. You are cherished by the living God that chose to give his life for you. What are you going to do about it?
1: Thank you for that, Mitch. Um, We're now going to stand and sing our final song, King of My Heart. Thank you.
0: pray with me, church? God, today we want to recognize you as the one who met us, not even in the middle, but the God who sifted in, got his hands dirty, and gave his life for us. We ask that you help us to believe and help us to accept that free gift that you offer us. Help us today and uh, be with us as we go. In your name, amen. Amen.